0: Well last week as you remember I trust we spent the hour watching as the scriptures gave us this picture of God as savior contrary to what many people imagine when they think about when they think about God when we compile all of the biblical data starting with God's eternal plan which laid the foundation for And then entered into time itself, we see that God is, as our confession states it, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And you remember the great reward is God Himself. God is a saving God it is of his essence his nature to save psalm 68:19 we read says blessed be the lord who daily bears us up god is our salvation selah god is our salvation well as promised we will now move into the details of the outworking of that plan of salvation specifically considering the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we begin as we should, or as you would expect we would, with God the Father. We typically refer to Him as the first person of the Holy Trinity, the Father. So I'll begin reading, uh, In the title of this chapter is The Father's Work, of salvation. And again as we walk through this, I want you to try to think about the magnitude of what we're saying. Even if even if we're just reading, think about the magnitude of these terms. If you can, I know that it's difficult sometimes and you're following along or you're taking notes or you're flipping in your Bible, you're trying to find the passages. Sometimes you feel like you spent the hour working. If you can, try to rest your mind and your heart down In these truths. That's the word picture that I use. Let your mind and your heart just lay back into the arms of God in His truth and just delight in who He is, starting with this title, The Father's Work of Salvation. Now, when we talk theology, we will typically refer to Him as the Father. But because of what we're studying here, because of the gospel, He is not simply the Father. He's our Father. This is our Father. Now you, you fathers, think about how you view your children. What does, it, what does it mean to be a father to behold your children? You children, think about how you view your father. This is God, our Father. We're considering the work of our Father in salvation. It should be a wonderful truth. Not simply the Father, but our Father. This This is personal. So he says, the God who designed a plan for his people's salvation also acted and still acts in human history to carry out that plan. In the pages below, we will consider several great truths regarding the Father's role in the salvation of His people. God the Father sent His Son, imputed our sin to His Son, punished His Son, raised His Son from the dead, exalted His Son to His right hand, and now caused all men to repent and believe. So those will be our, our four main headings For this evening, the Father sent his Son, the Father imputed our sin to his Son, the Father punished his Son, and the Father raised and exalted his Son. So, number one, the Father sent his Son. The Father sent his Son. One of the greatest mistakes made by even sincere believers is attributing the divine work of salvation to Christ alone. A lot of times when we think of salvation, Savior, what it means to be a Christian, we, we only think about Christ, the work of the Son. He says, in some cases, Christ's work is even portrayed as saving us from the Father. However, such an idea is clearly contrary to the Scriptures. We must always remember that our salvation begins with God the Father. And it is because of His love for us, that He sent His only Son. And referring back to last week, if we asked, when did this love of the Father begin for us? Well, those whom He foreknew. Before the foundation of the world, He foreknew His people. He loved us beforehand. So the Father's love begins in eternity. It is the basis for everything that Christ has done. His love for us began in eternity. His love for us is the reason for us and for all things there would be no earth or sun or stars or trees or mountains or oceans if our father had not loved us it is that love which gave rise to everything the father's love for us let's turn to john 3:16 and we'll start there john 3:16 John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So we we see a few things here. The first, the point that he's making is that God, the Father, sent or gave His Son. That's the emphasis. The Father sent His Son. But we also see the Father gave His Son... It says, that, or we we could say, so that, or in order that, or to this end. The Father gave His Son to this end for this purpose, that those who believe in His Son should not perish, but have eternal life. The Father sent His Son in order to give eternal life to those who believe. And we also see that the Father did this, going back to the beginning of the verse, out of love because He loved the world. For God so loved the world. The goal in the sending of the Son was life for those who would believe. It was just like, and if you if you read in the context there, it's just like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. We went to Moses, we say, Moses, why are you holding up this serpent? He wouldn't say, well, I like holding up serpents. It's just a hobby of mine. I like to put them on a a pole and just stand in the desert with a serpent. I, I think it's kind of fun. No, he's holding up the serpent because he wanted the Israelites to live. That was the way that they would have life. His role was holding up the serpent. So if we were to ask, why did God send His Son to be nailed to the cross? Because He wanted sinners to live. That's the reason. The Father sent His Son in order to save. Now we see this in the next verse. For, this is John 3, 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved Through him, the Father sent the Son into the world to save the world. If you were to go up to Moses as he holds up the bronze serpent and say, Moses, you know that those who don't look at the serpent are going to die. It's your fault they're dying. You're holding up this serpent so that they die. No, they're already heading to death. They've already been bitten. I'm holding up this serpent so that they have something to look at and live. And that's what we see. The Father didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world. We were already condemned. We were already perishing. And the Father sent His Son to save the world. That word save is a form of that word we saw last week, soter, salvation, soteriology. Same idea here. The salvation of sinners was on the mind of the Father when He sent His Son into the world. Why send salvation? Saving sinners. Turn now to First John chapter 4. First John 4. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify. Remember this is the same author, John the disciple, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, the rescuer, the deliverer, the, the protector. Again, flowing out of the eternal plan of God and God's character as Savior, we see that God sent His Son to be the means or the way of salvation. The whole world Because of sin was already lying in ruin and darkness. And as we read last week, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. He appointed the time. When the time came out of love with His disposition to save, God says, I'm now sending my Son. Why? To save sinners out of love for the world. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our Heavenly Father did that for us. If He would not have done that, we would perish. We would have no hope. There would be be no gospel to preach. There would be no good news. We could gather around. We could rally. We could chant and, and unite our voices in the fact that we are all perishing, but there would be no good news to preach if the Father had not done this. If our Heavenly Father had not done this. So the Father, we see, sent His Son. Now we go even further. Number two, the Father imputed our sin to His Son. The Father imputed our sin to His Son. Here we're beginning to answer the question, and this is an important question. How exactly is the Son of God going to save us? You ever thought about that? What, what What does God sending His Son into the world do to save us? How... How is there a relation between what God did with His Son and where we are in our sin? Well, here we begin to see. I'm reading again under that heading. God the Father did not send His Son into this world merely to teach us truths about God or give us principles by which we might live a life. That would be pleasing to Him. God sent His Son into this world to die as an atoning sacrifice in our place. For this to happen... It was necessary for God to impute our sins to his sinless son. The word impute comes from the Latin verb imputare which means to reckon to one's account. On the cross the Father reckoned our sin to his son's account. This is one of the greatest doctrines of the Christian faith I would say if we, it, it, if you don't have this, you lose the gospel. There's no gospel outside of these, this idea of imputation. Now, this, we've covered this many times, and here it sort of comes up again. He doesn't really go into it very much. He's going into the work of the Son, but we're reminded again of the problem of sin. Why do we need to be saved? What are we in danger of? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that we are sinners. We've all sinned. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by action. And as sinners, we must be punished by God by being banished from God and enduring the penalty for breaking His commands because we're sinners. That's the problem. Now, in sending His Son, what have we already seen? The Father was sending someone to address that problem, to to address the problem of sin. Our sins must be punished Or God is not just. We've already seen our Father loved us from eternity. Our Father is going to have us with Him. He's going to save His people. we got this problem. They're sinners. They have to be punished. They're mine. I must have them. I love them. And so the Father sent His Son to answer that apparent conflict, that problem. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. The question here is, in what kind of body did God send His Son? We're answering the question, how does God sending His Son save us? Well, here's the first step. What kind of body did He have? Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. We could add in parenthesis, the flesh of the man Christ Jesus. He condemned sin in the flesh of the man Christ Jesus. So what kind of body did God send for His Son, or, or in what kind of body did God send His Son? In the likeness of sinful flesh. I'll read the note here. He says, In the incarnation, the Son of God did not take to Himself a body like that of mankind prior to the fall. Rather, His body, though untainted by sin, was subject to all the terrible consequences of our fallen race. As a man, He was subject to the same limitations, frailties, afflictions, and anguishes of fallen humanity. So we, we, we might think, we, we don't know how tall the man Jesus was. Let's say he's 5'8", but because he was the Son of God, that didn't mean that he could reach things on a shelf 12 feet tall. No, he was subject to the same limitations that we are in his human flesh. He says, it would have indeed been a great humiliation if the Son had taken the nature of pre-fall humanity when it was in its full glory and strength. However, his humiliation was even greater than this, as he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the Son of God assumed the nature of a man, the true nature of a man. We, we would say uh, the, the body and soul of a human being just like us. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children of God, he himself likewise partook of the same things, what things? Flesh and blood. Hebrews ten fourteen. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The Son of God sent by His Father into the world in what form? A man. Sinful flesh. Flesh and blood. A human body. What happens next? Again, we're answering the question... How does the sending of the Son of God save anybody? Well, first, we understand that he was sent and he took the flesh of a man. He was a man just like us. All right, now turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Christ. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he sent him in human flesh. What then? He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the question there was what did God the Father do to his Son while he was upon the cross? He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read the note. He says, God made Christ to be sin in the same way that the believer is to be the righteousness of God. The moment a person believes in Jesus, he is pardoned of his sin and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him or placed onto his account. If you're walking through a really tight hallway and there's somebody coming your way, you might say, pardon me. What does that mean? Let me go by. When we say our sins have been pardoned, it's as if our sins, God says, I, I, I'm just going to let them go. Now, how, how can He do that? Well, because He imputed them to His Son. God legally declares Him to be righteous. This is the sinner. And treats Him as righteous. When Christ hung upon the cross, He did not become corrupt or unrighteous, Rather, God imputed our sins to Him, legally declared Him to be guilty, and treated Him as guilty. Now, I hadn't read this. We talked about this the other Saturday in our men's study. We have to be careful when we read this language, He made Him to be sin. And just, just know that there's more than just the words on the page. You, you don't have to, to, to uh, be so strict as to say, no, no, Christ, he, he made Him sin. The man Jesus became somehow in some form. He became sin. Well, no, look at the rest of the verse. It's, it's a parallel. Just like we are declared righteous, His righteousness imputed to us, and we are treated as if we are righteous, so also Christ, our sins were imputed to Him, and He was treated as if He were the sinner. We could read this, and, and you'll see older writers will, will just sort of make this translation on the fly. He made him to be a sin offering. Now we say, well, we might get nervous about that. Oh, You're, you're inserting words into the text, things like that. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is very often translated as sin offering. That In, in the sacrificial system, it was the sin offering. So... Paul, being a Jew, understood this idea. So when he uses this word, what he's saying is the Father made Christ to be the sin offering. He made him to be the one who would take the penalty for sin. Just like under the Old Covenant, we wouldn't say that bulls and goats and turtle doves actually became sinners. No, they were the ones who took upon themselves the penalty for the sin. So also Christ was not made to be a sinner. We can never attribute any fault or sinfulness to him whatsoever. But he was treated as a sinner. Which, if you think about it, is, it actually makes it all the more glorious. If he actually became a sinner, well then he deserves to be punished just like we do. He didn't become a sinner. He remained pure, spotless, perfect holy the entire time and yet was treated as if he were as guilty and, and as vile and as wicked as all of his people put together. He was treated that way. And again, this is the reason that he took the nature of a man. That text back in Hebrews 2.14, he, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the thing, same things. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, he became a man so that he could die. He took on flesh and blood so that that flesh and blood could be crushed and poured out for sinners. So again, the question was, what does sending his son do for us that we might be saved? The father sends the son. How does that save us? Well, the son became a man, just as we are, so that he could die as a man and he does this as the substitute for sinful men and in this way those the father loves do not need to be perished or do not need to perish but they can be with him forever their sins are punished but they are not all right number 3 we go even further the father punished his son Again, these doctrines of imputation and this one in particular is absolutely crucial to the gospel. If Those of you who've gone through membership interviews, you know this is one of the things that I will sit there all day asking questions, asking questions until you tell me the father punished his son. Because it's central to the gospel, but just to say it is hard. This is a hard truth. Many people will, will flat out deny this aspect of the gospel because it seems so horrid to them, to the, to the carnal mind. The father punished his son. Reading again, he says, It was not enough for the son to bear our sins. It was also necessary that he suffer the wrath of God and die in our place as a sin-bearing substitute. Through the Son's suffering and death, the demands of God's justice against us were satisfied, and the wrath of God against us was appeased. Only in this way could God both maintain His justice and justify the sinner. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. He says, here is found one of the most important texts in all the scriptures regarding the nature of Christ's suffering and death. What did God the Father do to His only Son as He hung on the cross of Calvary? Here we're going to answer that. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now the note says seven words are used to describe Christ's suffering under the wrath of God. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastened, and scourged is the way the NAS translates it. The New English translation provides helpful insight into the meaning of this text. This is sort of an interpretive translation. Quote, We thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. But he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds. Crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds we have been healed. Again, if you pay attention, it was our griefs. Our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, not His, ours, for which the Son suffered. It was we who were not at peace with God. It was we who were chronically sick with sin, not Him. He is completely separate from all of that, but voluntarily entered into our law place for this purpose. All of His work was on our behalf. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, and crushed precisely because he was standing in our place. It was as if all of this, these, these illustrations of God's just wrath towards sins, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, all of that was coming down upon us. We... Had been tried, we had been found guilty, we had been sentenced to death, and it was as if the blade of the guillotine was already coming down upon our necks. And in comes the Son of God, sent by the Father. He grabs us, moves us out of the way, thrusts his own neck into the guillotine, and takes the punishment for our sins when he was not guilty. And there we stand. We see him punished. We see him afflicted. We see him stricken. He has taken the punishment. For what? He didn't do it. Those were my sins. Exactly. Now you go free. Our Father did this for us. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That phrase, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, could be translated, it pleased the Lord. He tells or explains there in the note this word pleased. is translated from the Hebrew word "shafetz," which means to delight in, be pleased with, or desire. It brought the Lord delight. It brought the Lord pleasure. It was His will, His desire, His purpose. As His Son was made to be a sin offering for us, it was His will, His desire to crush Him. Now he says God did not gain some sadistic pleasure by crushing His own Son under the full weight of His wrath. It wasn't like God just likes doing mean things. Rather, he was pleased that through Christ's suffering and death, the will of God was accomplished and the way of salvation was opened for his people. The word crush comes from the Hebrew word daka, which means to crush, smite, or break in pieces. Christ was crushed by the Father and put to grief so that his people might be saved through his suffering and death. This pleased the Lord. It pleased the Father. Why? Because this is the reason that He sent His Son. This this is why He came. It pleased the Father to see His eternal plan of love coming to fruition. The Father knew this is the moment where I act and bring swift justice to their sins in His body on the tree so that they go free. It pleased our Father because in this way He was making atonement for our sins without punishing us. So the Father crushed His Son, punishes His Son. Number four, the Father raised and exalted His Son. God the Father sent His Son into the world in the the likeness of sinful flesh. He imputed our sins to Him and crushed Him under the full force of His wrath. Through the death of His Son, the Father made atonement or full payment. That's what that word means. Full payment for our sin. Then, on the third day, He raised His Son from the dead. And He later exalted Him to the place of honor at His right hand as the Lord of all and the Savior of those who believe. Having proven His own authority by raising Christ from the dead, and having proven Christ's authority through His exaltation, the Father now declares that all men should repent, and He commands that they believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, where we see this. Acts chapter 2, specifically we're noting the work of God, or the Father, in raising the Son. Acts 2.32 This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Here we see that the crucified Jesus whose death none of the Jews would have been able to deny these things were not done in a corner Now he's become the risen Jesus. Peter and the other disciples could testify to his resurrection. The man's alive, in other words. And the word witnesses here, we are all witnesses. It refers to an eyewitness, as in the law. Two or three witnesses. Someone who has seen and heard and can bear eyewitness testimony to what they have personally seen and heard. Many of the Jews again would have been able to bear this kind of eyewitness to the death of Jesus. We saw him hanging there. We watched him die. We watched them take his body down. The disciples now could bear witness to his being alive. The man's not dead anymore. Therefore he had been raised from the dead. God raised him up. Look at chapter 3. Acts 3:15. 3, He says, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And again, they, they, they put the Jews in a corner. They couldn't deny his death. He's dead. The apostles, the apostles said, and we're bearing testimony, he's alive. The man Jesus was alive. Again, God Raised him up. Turn to Romans 6, 4. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Describing the the inner workings of our salvation and our union with Christ, Paul says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he says that phrase, glory of the Father, is most likely a reference to God's glorious power. So in all three of these texts, it is God, and he's pointing out specifically God the Father, who raised up His Son. Number two here says, having raised His Son from the dead, the Scriptures teach that God also highly exalted Him, as Lord of all and Savior of those who believe. Let's see that in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, it it is the Father who is at work exalting His Son. We read this in Psalm one ten one. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I've brought you here. Now take the place of supremacy, of, of preeminence in the heavens. We also see in that text that there's nothing outside of the kingly dominion of Jesus Christ. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess. The one who died, who is now alive, who is seated in the heavens, he rules over all things. Acts chapter 5, we'll turn back there. Acts chapter 5 verses 30 and 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now the note points out in this context, Peter is speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, but the truth can be applied to all peoples. God has raised and exalted his son, as the Savior of all who believe. And would we be surprised that the work of God in raising His Son from the dead and exalting Him, are we surprised to find out that He he did that in order to give repentance, in order to give salvation to sinners? Does that shock us? When we read that and we get to the book of Acts and we say, wait, whoa, wait a second. All of a sudden God's saving people? No, it doesn't shock us at all because this is what He's been doing from the very beginning. Why did He send His Son to save sinners? Why did He give His Son a body to save sinners? Why did He punish His Son in order to save sinners? Why did He raise Him from the dead to save sinners? Why did He exalt Him into the heavens to save sinners, to give repentance to sinners? This is what God has been doing through His Son. Number three says, God raised His Son from the dead and exalted Him as Lord and Savior according to the following Scriptures. How should every man respond to this great work? Let's look at Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. How should everyone respond? What does God expect for men to do now that this has taken place? Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Just as we saw this morning, the, there is a, a prohibition, a command do not be self deceived, do not deceive yourself. Here we also see a biblical command you must repent. You must repent. God commands us to turn from our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He commands that. It's not simply an offering, it is an offering. It's not simply an invitation, however, it is an invitation. But it's also a command. God has made clear that He will judge the sins of men. We saw that several weeks ago. God is judge. But what we don't see in the Bible is God saying, You are sinners. I am judge. I will judge all men for their sins. Good luck finding a way out of that one. We never see that. God says, I'm just. I must punish sinners. But out of love... I sent my son to take the punishment for them. I've raised him from the dead and now I'm sending my spirit throughout the world so that men can preach and tell people that I command them to turn from their sins and come to me. That's what God has done. Before it's too late, turn, repent. Now, again, think about this God. Do you think... I've sinned many, many great sins. I'm full of sins. And if I go to this God, I'm not sure how He's going to respond. I think that He might respond in some sort of, some, some sort of anger. He's going to make me jump through some hoops. He's going to make me feel awkward. He's going to embarrass me. He's going to make it difficult for me to be saved when I come to Him. Does that seem like the God that is revealed in Scripture? the god who would say i'm commanding you to come to me and be saved i've proven that i want to save sinners by sending my son now come does that do those pictures go together of course not of course not god wants us to come in repentance and to be saved the whole plan has kept the salvation of sinners at the forefront now we, we, we often want to say or qualify for the glory of God. Ultimately, God's glory is, is preeminent. And we say yes and amen. But these are not contrasting themes. It's not like we have to say, was his goal to save sinners out of love or was his goal to glorify himself? No, the answer is yes. He glorifies himself by saving sinners so that we can see his glorious grace and his love that is given to us in his Son. They're not in competition. 1 John 3.23, you don't have to turn here. It says, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And the note there says, believing is more than just giving mental or intellectual assent. It involves trust, reliance, and dependence. To believe in Jesus is to entrust one's life and eternal well-being to the person, promises, and will of God in Christ. This is what God commands. Not with a stern, furrowed brow command, you better repent. No, God is commanding men, repent and be saved. Repent and come. Repent and come. Judgment is coming. You better repent and believe and be saved. Our Father has done this all of this. In the Scripture, we see invitations, we see pleading, we see beckoning with an outstretched hand, and we see clear commands for men to come and be saved. So if you're not a Christian, hear again the clear command. Entrust your life, your eternal well-being to the person, promises, and will of God. In Christ. The desire of God. The purposes of God. What have we seen? What does God want to do? God wants to save sinners. Trust Him. That when He says, I desire to save sinners, He means it. And entrust yourself to Him. Rest in Him. God the Father is not a cruel, capricious tyrant who needed His bloodlust satisfied before He lost control and killed everybody. That's not the God of the Bible. God, our Father, in eternal and limitless love, set his eyes on sinful men and sent his Son to deliver us from certain death through his own death. That's the God of the Bible. I'll close with this verse we know well 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins.